Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Steve Hoffman will join us to discuss the five forces. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Technology is changing everything, but how will it shape our future? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Steve Hoffman. Mr. Hoffman, or Captain Hoff as he's called in Silicon Valley, is the CEO of Founders Space, one of the world's leading startup incubators. He's also an angel investor, limited partner at August Capital, serial entrepreneur, and author of several awarding winning books, including Make Elephants Fly and Surviving a Startup. He has penned the new book, The Five Forces That Change Everything. How technology is shaping our future. Mr. Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It is fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Great book you've put together here. Talk about a number of uh, emerging detectors. Why you decided to put the book together? So I put this book together because I am deeply immersed in technology. I run a startup accelerator called Founder Space, which is a global organization. We work all over the world with entrepreneurs and scientists and venture capitalists. And I'm seeing the technology being developed today and the impact it will have in the future. So a lot of people don't realize this, but we have huge amounts of new technology in the pipeline that will be emerging, that will fundamentally change the way our society works, the way business works, and our lives. And I wanted to bring that forward so we could discuss it, so there could be a dialogue around how to properly use this technology. For technologies, there's certainly a number of them out there. Do you see that these being the ones that are pivotal to the future? Well, these five forces encapsulate the main thrust. Of course, it's not everything. But the five forces, each of them, is pretty broad. They're kind of fundamental things that we have seen emerge, not just recently, but over the course of human history. So I can briefly go over those and let you know, number one is mass connectivity. It's how we're connected. It's everything from the first printed word, the first story we told through the Gutenberg's printing press, through the internet. And then the question is what's coming next? brain-computer interfaces, augmented reality, virtual reality. Number two is bioconvergence. And that is the convergence of biological sciences and technology. And so this includes gene editing, transgenic animals, developing mini brains, all sorts of amazing things that are coming in our future in the, in the bioconvergence area. Number three is human expansionism. And this is our vision to expand our knowledge, both into outer space, as we're seeing with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, you know, pioneering, colonizing the moon and Mars, as well as deep into the subatomic world with quantum computers and uh, nanotechnology and nanorobots. We go deep in that area. The fourth force is deep automation. And that is the area where AI 
plays a role. So we are automating everything that we can automate, all of our industries, all of the processes we do, even things in our personal lives are being automated by AI. And that trend is going to continue and it's gonna have far reaching consequences. And number five is the intelligence explosion. And this is where we actually develop machines that have the semblance of consciousness. And I say semblance because we'll never truly know if they're conscious, but these machines will be so smart that they will rival us at doing almost any task on the planet. And many of our machines will exceed us in intelligence. So what does that mean? Having listed all these five forces, looking at these technologies and guiding them to a point where they're most beneficial to humanity? Yes. So we can take specific technologies and talk about them. So let's take CRISPR gene editing. So it's an amazing technology we have right now. This is part of bioconvergence. Literally, we have figured out how to program the source code for life on this planet. So plant life, animal life, human life, we can develop new species of plants and animals that never existed before. What does that mean? You know, what does it mean when we have taken evolution into our own hands? Well, I'll tell you a lot of amazing things. So we can have crops that grow faster. We can have animals that grow faster. So a startup called Aquabounty has just released in the United States, gene edited fish, salmon, that grow much larger and faster than traditional salmon. So that could be you know, good for food supply. We have in the University of Florida, they are doing gene edited cows. Why? Because they want these cows to be more heat resistant. So that when, as climate, as our climate changes, the cows can live and thrive in much hotter temperatures. Then we have all these crops that are being gene edited that are coming into the marketplace. Some of them with amazing properties. They, we have the ability now to take an apple and a pear and literally combine them and create a new fruit that tastes like an apple and pear. What would we call it? And what would this be? This possibility and many, many more are coming our way. There's also dangers, like we can start to gene edit our own bodies, gene edit human beings. They did this in China. A, a scientist in China gene edited embryos, human embryos, to make them more resistant to the AIDS virus. Well, you could see this as a good thing, but we don't know the consequence of actually uh, editing these embryos. Our tools are still primitive, and it could actually introduce genetic flaws into uh, those babies that then could be propagated to their babies and so on. We don't know. And we are on the line where we are actually, we could be on the cusp of actually editing humans so that we change fundamental traits like intelligence, like the color of your skin, like your different health conditions. We could eliminate those cancers. Both There are both good results and potentially very scary results coming out of this technology. These sorts of issues have been around for a while with genetic modification, but now they're becoming more pointed as our ability to target these things is becoming a little more clear. Is it, is it the issue that now that we're getting better and better tools that these issues are coming more to the forefront? That's absolutely right. The more advanced our tools become, the more we can do. And these are incredibly powerful tools that we've never had before. So in terms of genetic editing, you know, there are scientists in the lab, they're now creating mini brains, miniature brains 
These are functioning living organism brains. And then a scientist actually in the UK took one of these mini brains, put it in a little robot. And that mini brain actually functioned to help navigate that robot around obstacles. It's kind of crazy. You know, a cyborg essentially he's creating. And the question is, and scientists are asking these ethical, you know, they're dealing with these ethical issues right now. What happens is you start to grow these mini brains. So they get larger and larger approaching human sized brains. And they've actually begun to do that. And they start seeing brain wave patterns that are, that are very close to what we would consider a conscious being. So what is the moral implications of creating a brain, you know, an artificial brain supported that we could put in a robot or we could keep in a lab? When do we know it achieves consciousness? How do we know? And should we even be going this direction? The uh, forces that you mentioned in many ways are interrelated. Do we focus on the outcome of their best use? So we need to focus on the, the bigger issues around technology, because honestly, there are so many technologies out there and there are so many different applications, how they can be used and abused. So as you said, very correctly, all these technologies are inter intertwined. None of them actually exist separately. So if you take gene editing and all the progress we're making there, a lot of that is powered by AI. And if you take AR and VR and computer brain interfaces, they're also a combination of, of our human biology combining with different technologies, audio video technologies, chip processing technologies, all of these technologies are necessary. So no technology exists or really can add a lot of value in a vacuum. They add a lot of value in combination with other technologies and the entire uh, technological landscape that exists today. It's just like when broadband came out, you know, broadband came out, it's a technology, but what broadband enabled was amazing. Broadband, literally broadband connectivity enabled AI because we have had AI dating all the way back before the 1950s. You know, these algorithms have been around, but we didn't have the broadband. We didn't have the computer storage, the computer processing power to actually make use of all the data out there to make AI actually function to its full potential. So it was when all these technologies came into being that suddenly AI started to show its power. Concentrating on envisioning our future. Last chapter of your, um, where you talk about the future of work being a jobless society. Should we be envisioning the society that we want and harnessing all these tools then to create that? Yeah. So a lot of people worry what happens when literally artificial intelligence becomes so powerful that any job a human can do, a machine can do better. And we know machines are amazing. We, we will be developing machines that can literally work day and night, never require a pay raise, never get sick, never complain, and do certain tasks perfectly. You know, we're already seeing this. But what, with AI, that potential becomes even greater because there's literally, we think human beings are creative. We think human beings are very versatile. That's true. We are, but there is no reason that uh, uh, well-developed algorithms tied to different robotics can't simulate and actually improve upon what human beings do. So you mentioned jobless society. 
there will come a point inevitably it's inevitable that 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 humans won't have to work we will not be required to work because simply our machines will do that work right now certain people find that scary they'll be out of a job other people find it depressing what will be the meaning in life i find it neither because honestly it's not what what will matter most is is that we have the social systems put in place so that humans can benefit from the work machines are doing now if all the value created by these these machines these this automation goes into very few hands and everybody else is suffering that's not a good outcome so our social systems need to adapt to this new reality we need to make sure that things like universal basic income the wealth from these machines isn't going to just a very few people but it's actually distributed across society so everyone benefits then the question is well what will i be if i don't have a job well let me tell you for a hundred thousand years or more most humans on earth did not have a job we were hunter gatherers you know yes we'd go out and get food and yes we'd hunt woolly mammoths or you know other game out there but you know we didn't have like a specific job it's only in modern society that our identities have been associated with our work like today people ask the first question people ask when you meet them at a cocktail party what's your job what do you do <laughs> but and so we feel like the job is really important but honestly a lot of jobs out there are boring like they're very repetitive you know even surgeons do the same thing day in and day out if we can be freed up from routine jobs and actually allowed to be more creative i will tell you people have no trouble uh enjoying themselves people have no trouble finding pursuits and what today are our hobbies may in the future become our work we literally spend our lives creating things interacting with people traveling going places inventing creating art all of this will become what defines us in the future you work with a number of entrepreneurs how aware do you think silicon valley or, or elsewhere about these forces about their outcomes and thinking about these broader issues and well sadly most people in silicon valley and most people in government and society in general don't spend a lot of time thinking about this they are too busy like first of all politicians don't understand it people in silicon valley are really focused on the bottom line how could i make great products get them out there pay you know pay back my investors who funded me and become rich that's their main focus today and we've seen uh, some you know of the repercussions of this look at facebook for example mark zuckerberg you know his main goal number one goal in consistently he has shown this is to grow facebook to make facebook a bigger better more powerful and and all the investors in facebook more wealthy that was what he's done and he and you know think ethical issues like protecting people's data and privacy you know those have come second and it, this is not unusual this is how you know there are exceptions to this rule but most companies will operate on these principles so that is where the role of society the free press and government come into play like at certain points the it, what we have to do is curb what the potential what these technologies can do because we can see already with just social networks which are still pretty primitive compared to what's coming 
uh, the damage, potential damage they can do to our society, spreading information about health, uh, interfering with politics in ways that don't help democracy. These are really uh, dangerous to us. And they have actually, um, they have real world repercussions. So if we look at social networks today, this is just the beginning. Imagine a future world where the technologies are exponentially more powerful. We have artificial intelligence, for example. That is that we tend, we will, because artificial intelligence will become so powerful and so useful, we will welcome it into our lives and our businesses and our society and start delegating our decision-making to these machines because they have all the data out there. What happens when we do this? And who is in control of this? Where all that data being gathered, where does it go and how is it used? Is it used ultimately to manipulate us for somebody else's gain or is it used to benefit us and benefit society in general? In these things, I, don't, I think it's a balance between allowing free enterprise, innovation, which is absolutely necessary, and the needs of society in general. We that line is a very gray, fuzzy area that we have to navigate moving forward. Technology has the potential, of course, of just becoming a runaway train. What do you envision then are the avenues for guiding it so that it's to being the most beneficial for humanity? Well, let me give you an example. So everybody, a concrete example. What happens when brain-computer interfaces go mass market? And these brain-computer interfaces are so much more powerful than what's around today. So what is a brain-computer interface for those of your audience who don't know? It's essentially, it could be a chip you implant in your brain. It could be a little headband you wear around your head or even a tiny device you place behind your ear that allows your brain to talk to the internet. Now, this sounds marvelous. And I will tell you, in the laboratory today at Brown University, they have already put chips in people's brains. They are doing that. But these people have severe medical conditions like locked-in syndrome, meaning they are completely paralyzed. So their quality of life is really low. But by putting a chip in their brain, people today in the laboratory can actually control a robotic arm and feed themselves. They can drive themselves around in a wheelchair. They can literally, from their brain, send text messages to other people across the internet. That's totally amazing. And we have that technology right now. Now, it's, it's only a matter of time before we perfect, miniaturize that technology and start to make it available to people. So instead of carrying around a cell phone, you have this nifty brain-computer interface where you can now connect to the internet. You can ask a question and, and get an answer, just like you would for Amazon Alexa. Information could stream down into your brain. You could start to upload information, information you wanted to save, an idea you wanted to save, notes you wanted to take. Even They even have brain-computer interfaces now that can capture images inside your head. At the University of Toronto, they're working on this. They can literally look into your brain, even with today's primitive tools, and not even a chip in your brain, just a, an EEG, which is a, a, a cap that measures your brainwave, and they can start to extract. They're still crude images. They're, they're not high resolution, but they can extract images from your brain, and then you could transmit them across the internet or save them in the cloud. This is amazing, and it'll allow us to do so many things so much faster that we can't do today. However, the question is, 
what happens, what, what are people doing with the data from our brains? You know, Facebook already is gathering a lot of data on us. So is Google and all these other companies, Amazon. But what happens when they have access to our brains? Could they manipulate us? How would they use this information? It, it, the possibilities are kind of scary. And especially when you get to the point of governments, you know, how much access should a government have to your brain? You know, they've done experiments in the laboratory where they took a rat, they put a chip in the rat's brain, and then they had a human with a, a non-invasive, a cap on, a brain computer interface. And by thinking that human could control the rat through the maze, could actually guide the rat through the maze. Now, the weird part is that the rat had no idea it was being controlled. None. It was literally being controlled by the human, but it thought the ideas were coming from its own brain. So once we start to you know, connect our brains to the internet, could people be controlled? Well, it sounds like a, a, a paranoid schizophrenic's nightmare, you know, with, with, but this technology is here today. And I tell you, it will be available in the coming decades at some point. And then we have to decide as a society how to limit this technology. What should we do? How can we safeguard things? Because we know the most precious thing we have, the most precious thing is our free agency, our free will. You know, if you start to take this away because of technology and allow certain corporations, governments, other things, hackers potentially, it might be, you know, if somebody hacks your credit card or your identity online, it's bad. But if somebody hacks your actual identity, your actual brain, then it gets really scary. So my, my goal right now is to start the dialogue, get people speaking about these technologies, get people to understand these technologies so, in the, so that we then can start to formulate how society navigates this. Do we put together think tanks? Do we uh, ask our politicians to invest in institutes that actually can look forward in the future, see how these technologies will be will be used and potentially abused and actually start thinking of how we can regulate or guide the development of these technologies to ensure our freedoms and, and a benefit to society as a whole. Well, the book is a very good introduction. I think a lot of the technologies that are out there. Uh, time, I'm just curious if you have some final words regarding five forces that is. So I will tell everybody, I am not a pessimist. I am not an optimist. I am in the middle. So I, uh, in the book, I paint out all the, the, the beautiful things we can do with this technology and how we can make our, our, our world much better place and solve a lot of the problems like climate change, education, hunger, poverty, things that we have now. But I also want this book to be, uh, to get people thinking about not just the good things, but also the dangers and how we can take action now to chart the right course. And I will tell people where they can find me if they want to reach me. Just go to founderspace.com and you can find me on Founderspace. You can also find the books there and you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. We were just talking with Stephen Hoffman, the new book, The Five Forces That Change Everything, How Technology is Shaping Our Future. Mr. Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. 
And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.